welcome back to Afternoon Tea. I'm so, so glad that you can be here for this episode. It's really, really lovely to be back. Today I'm going to be speaking to Simran in a bumper podcast episode. We're going to be speaking about coronavirus, lots of stuff about free speech um, and race and really just everything that's been going on in the UK over the past year within politics. So hopefully this will be a really interesting episode for you to listen to. So I'm obviously Simran. I uh, graduated last June and I went to Manchester and studied French and Chinese, which was obviously a weird choice for me, but I did change my mind about six times before I started. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I studied French and Chinese. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at uni. I'm not sure many people do, but we we're expected to make this decision very early. Um, but yeah, I've kind of come out of it and I'm hoping to become some kind of journalist or writer. Not sure how it will go, but that's the aim. That's what I'm kind of working towards. So, yeah, I've just been um, writing for a few publications here and there and also obviously have my job as, like, a social media intern, which is very, very Gen Z of me, even though I think (laughs) I'm a millennial, I think, fingers crossed. Um, So, yeah, that's, like, kind of the aim. And I think that's where my interest in politics has really helped me. I mean, I think the reason I want to be a journalist so bad is because I feel like I have so much to say about everything that goes on in the world. And I think that, you know, 2020 was kind of the perfect year for all of that manifesting. I mean, so much happened. I have, I mean, I'm I'm only 24, but I feel like it was one of the most momentous years of my life. And I don't mean momentous. I know that people use momentous, like momentous isn't a good thing. I mean, it wasn't great. I'm sure you can agree. Um, yeah, so that's kind of an introduction to me and like what I'm up to and what I'm hoping to do with my life at the ripe age of 24. Yeah, that sounds really good. And I 100% agree. 2020 wasn't momentous. Um, what was 2020 like for you? Like, what were you up to last year when, let's start, like, I guess we'll start sort of January time, February time. So like pre-pandemic, oh those like the glory days, like what were you up to? And then what did you get up to for, you know, the, the three subsequent lockdowns? <laughs> yeah, three subsequent lockdowns, that sounds tragic. But um, yeah, so I was at university, so I literally graduated last June. So it's not even been a year yet. It feels like it's been about four, but it's not even been a, be- been a year yet. Um, so I was at uni, like millions of other students in the country was just at uni and it was my final year so I was kind of like trying to knuckle down and actually work and not go out every night as I'm sure everyone knows that uni is like um so yeah then I was kind of yeah at uni and then the pandemic struck and I remember thinking oh well I'm going to be home for two weeks so I only took back with me pajamas I was like, I'm going to be at home for two weeks it'll be fine was at home for four months so I was switching out between pajamas for four months but it's fine um and then yeah I started I started writing in lockdown actually that was when I decided that was when I wanted to kind of it was something I wanted to pursue so I started doing you know a couple of articles on LinkedIn things like that just kind of sharing my thoughts and then yeah so it's, it's been it's been a pre- pretty much a whirlwind of a year for me I mean graduating was massive I mean I didn't get the ceremony that you know we all wanted for the picture on LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff of me and my gown my mum was pretty upset but so I graduated and then was at home for ages and then I managed to get a job obviously really really lucky obviously a very very hard time to get a job but managed to get a job and then moved out in 
November. So yeah, I mean, big year for me, really. And then turned 24 in December. And now we're here. Yeah, that's so momentous. So <laughs> I just use the yeah. word. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. Um, that is crazy. Because I think for a lot of people, it was like a year of sort of standstill and then it was politics and sort of like social movements that became the thing that sort of caught our attention and kept our eyes open but for you like Mm -hmm. that's a lot to juggle like you know graduating finishing I assume like your dissertation exams everything like that that's insane yeah like it genuinely feels like I graduated well it doesn't even feel like I've graduated I feel like I kind of went to uni and then it was over and now I'm here like I can't even place where things happen Mm. but yeah no so it was a massive year that's why I think I have so much to say about what happened because I was kind of in so many different aspects of it I mean I was a student for a part of it so kind of understand the aggravation and the upset that the students were feeling I was then just a young person a graduate into a job market with I mean I thought no prospect because it was all just very difficult also just a human being who's obviously suffering well not suffering I mean I'm very lucky with the year I had but a pandemic is it's it's not it's like nothing we've ever been through before I mean there was swine flu and there was bird flu but they were never anything to this extent and I mean like lockdown I can't even remember what it's like to be amongst people I don't know do you know what I mean like I mean I went to the pub like you know the little the little window we had of freedom and I went to the pub and it was just awful like I don't want to have to order a meal and I want to get want to get a pint and then we had to wait like two hours for a meal because obviously everyone's there trying to get food and then also you're seeing all this horrible news of people dying every day and it shocks me just how desensitized we've like all become to it because these are real people with families and I see a number on the news and I'm like oh my god that's a lot of people but then you it leaves your brain and you're on to the next thing I mean a lot of the time when I talk to my friends about what happened last year and what's still happening now it's a case of I watch the news I feel really upset isn't even the word it's more just like shocked and oh my god this is really happening and then you talk about it for a while because I live with five other girls so I'm in I'm I'm in quite a big house and we all talk about it and then you'll get over it and you'll you know watch the next thing and then it's the same thing the next day I mean I don't know about you but I felt like though I have gone through a lot of change this year it has also felt like I've been living in the film Groundhog Day and every day has been the same yeah absolutely it's really weird yeah yeah yeah, 100% I think that that's like so hard it must have been so hard for you to like process all of that like going through all the changes you did like so many pivotal moments in your 20s that people talk about like you know moving out getting your first like proper job graduating all of that and then also seeing the like pandemic and again like you know everything going on in politics and like in societies around the world but I think yeah it's really it really was hard to contextualize like what those numbers actually meant when you see them on the news and I remember like in the first couple of months or so it was like oh this is really quite scary and then it just became a number and even now like until I saw comparative data with other countries you know seeing how many deaths they had I really didn't like I guess process it and also I think that that's like 
quite a key point that for a lot of young people, they didn't really process it until they saw that because a lot of us don't really know people who would have been affected. You know, a lot yeah. of, you know, like it's it's hard to imagine, oh, you know, you've got a friend who's passed away because we're not at that age. And so I would just hear of like, oh, a friend of a friend's grandparent has passed away or, yeah. uh, you know, something like that. So I think it's really hard for us to understand it. What are your Definitely. yeah? What are your thoughts about that, and also like the way that the government ha- has handled COVID? Definitely, like I completely agree with you. I think for young people, I feel like, I mean, it's really difficult because we're supposed to be at what is the prime of our life, really, aren't we? I mean, that's what the twenties are supposed to be like. But we are in a position now where you know when I when I'm staying in in lockdown, when I'm staying in because of everything that's going on, I'm not necessarily staying in because I'm worried about myself and. I'm concerned that I could get COVID and die, which could happen. There are there are young people that this has happened to, but it's more about, you know, for the more vulnerable in society that we, you know, we're doing this for. Um, and I think that the government's handling of it, I mean, it's a bit of a joke, to be honest. And it's the first time since, because I voted in the Brexit referendum as well. So I voted it, I, oh, I'm in 18, was it? Oh my God, it's a really long time ago, it was six <laughs> years ago. But, um, oh my God, sorry. I've just had an identity crisis on the podcast. But no, um, yeah, so I, it's the first time I've kind of felt really embarrassed by what's going on. And I think that, you know, there's been so much going on in the whole year that, I don't know where we're all supposed to focus on. I mean, on one hand, we've got this government that's let us down again and again, and government that can't make a concrete decision. It's just been U-turn after U-turn. And then we've also got the highest like COVID death toll in Europe and a, a rubbish like test and trace system and all this wasted money on PPE. And it's just, I think it's frustrating because what are we supposed to do? I think that's what a lot of people feel stuck. I mean, there's one thing I can do, you know, I can talk to my friends about it. I can talk to my family about it and moan about it. But I mean, what is my moaning going to do realistically, apart from maybe make me feel a bit better because I've got someone to talk to about it. But I think a lot of people have this idea. I mean, I've seen a lot. I'm very active on like Twitter, for example. I just, I love Twitter. I mean, primarily for the meme content, but also it's a very informative platform. Um, but a lot of people I've seen saying, well, he's he's doing his best. Like Boris Johnson's doing his best. And it's like, I don't know if he is. <laughs> I like, you know, I don't know if he is. I mean, there's a lot of things. Well, nobody would do well in a crisis. But he took the role of prime minister knowing that not everything's going to be smooth sailing. I mean, we've seen it in, in, in our last two prime ministers, for Theresa May and David Cameron. I mean, David Cameron incited the Brexit vote under Theresa May. We had Grenfell. A lot of things went wrong under the last few Tory governments. And I think if you're becoming prime minister of a country, you're taking responsibility of running a country no matter the situation you find yourself in. And I think that, if anything, this this pandemic's really exposed kind of the, the cracks in the Tory government in the last 10 years. And, you know, we've got an underfunded NHS, which has been put under an obscene amount of pressure in the pandemic. I mean... The main thing that we're staying at home for is so our health system isn't fall apart, which is already very worrying. And then we've got people who are having to still work or aren't getting support they need. So are having to go to work. And 
so it's just the workers' rights issue is also cropping up in a country that is supposed to be so progressive and forward-thinking and understands what the people need, doesn't actually understand what the people need. And then you've also got the most vulnerable people in our society just being let down again and again. It's just, it's really disheartening, I think. And especially as a young person, this is our future that is now kind of, you know, at risk. And I think when I was younger, I was very naive and I thought, you know, you do, I think there's a certain age you come to and you start thinking, okay, I have to start thinking about politics. And I think for me, I was happy to be ignorant and then you realise just how important it is in every aspect every aspect of your life. And I think that COVID has really opened people's eyes up to kind of the problems that are are there. And I mean, I'm you wanna you want to say that hopefully people have realised that this government isn't doing the right thing and you know, I mean a general election is a long time or a long time ago. A lot of things can change before then. But yeah, I think the handling of the pandemic by the government, I mean, clearly it's been just awful. Um, they failed to listen to the advice of European nations who have been locking down for us at the start. Open borders we had until, I mean, it wasn't a couple of months ago that they shut the borders. If you have been abroad, you get a text or a phone call making sure you're staying at home, which isn't really a great enforcement policy. I mean, I, I could probably name a few people that have definitely been on holiday and definitely haven't been at home. And then the, the mask law only came into place in July. And I mean, did COVID wasn't scared of masks before then? I, do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, I think that it's just not been great. I think every decision was made too late. And the only thing that makes me think of this government at the moment is the U-turn. And that's not really what you want from what is supposed to be a strong body that is helping your country in a crisis, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty morbid, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And um, yeah, something that really stood out for me, and I, I don't know if you've seen this, you probably have. Piers Morgan's been a bit of like a people's champion recently, which yeah. is, we're all shocked. Like, no one was expecting mm-hmm. that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's the no, biggest definitely. U-turn of 2020, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, he said to Matt Hancock on the news, like, a couple of days ago, he was just asking him questions, and then Matt Hancock goes, like, you know what, I think we should actually be, like, thanking... Um, the well basically I don't know I don't want to like misquote him because obviously this is going to be broadcasted out but basically saying that we should be thanking his team and we should be thanking um a section of the government for what they've done for us and that really just summed it up it's like you're being paid to do this job and you know how many times has our country been in crisis as you mentioned you know we've already had viruses that have come into this country but if you look back we've had recessions and wars and you know political discontent and social uprisings like you cannot say oh oh we should be thanking you and secondly with the death toll why should we be thanking you for that and I think it just goes to show every decision that the government has made has been about getting elected as you say like uh, that, that election is a long time away but everything you know loosening the rules really quickly they were just like oh we just need to do it now because otherwise people aren't going to like us anymore and they're going to be angry with us like I think that we would have a lot more respect for the government and even myself like I'm not a conservative voter I'll never be mm-hmm. a conservative voter but I would have a lot more respect for them if they had locked down the country and as long as it took they'd kept us in that and yes there would have been yeah. like dire consequences for the economy for mental health you know that we're not that's not the point but now saying 
oh, the reason why we opened up the country was because of mental health. That's a lie. They opened up the country yeah. because they're so easy to be swayed by, you know, basically public cries. And yeah, literally, like that yeah. is just, that's just not good enough. <laughs> I know it's just frustrating, isn't it? Because I can obviously see you as well. It just gets me so riled up. I mean, like everything they do seems to be for their own gain. There's no real thought process that makes me think they're doing it for our own safety. Because if it was for our safety, I'm sure we would not. I mean, I'm sure over 100,000 people wouldn't have died if they really cared about our safety. And I'm not saying that, you know, they don't care about anyone at all, but I just feel like I don't know how we're expected to not even, like, trust is a very strong word. But, yeah, trust the government when they've not given us any reason to do so. And I think that, you know, one example that I think really stands out is even the general election of 2019. I mean, that for me was a very difficult election. I was very, very upset, obviously, because another Conservative government won and it was obviously not what I'd voted for. Um, even that, I mean, for me, in ele- when I vote, I mean, it's something that I'll talk about a bit later, but voting... For me, it's never for myself. It's always for people who are like less fortunate than myself. And that's something that my family have really ingrained in me because obviously my family have done fine under a Tory government. I'm very lucky that I've also managed to kind of get a job and move out. My parents haven't helped me do that, but I've done it. And I'm, I'm, I've been able to do that, which is already amazing. And I'm very lucky. But the 2019 election, it was based on one thing, in my opinion, and that was Brexit. And that was what this country really wanted to achieve. And I mean, it wasn't, rather than this idea that people seem to have that Brexit was giving Britain the independence back and giving us this, you know, this, we don't care what the EU have to say, we're our own nation, we'll do what we can. But it was more of a polarised debate on immigration and the economy. And it really kind of scared me I guess as a way to describe because my parents so my parents are Indian so my mum moved to England in the 90s and my dad was born here once my grandparents came in the 60s so my parents are Indian so they've seen kind of a lot more than I have in terms of I mean immigration debates and things like that but it shocks me that there was such a massive election based on what was basically fear-mongering from from political parties for their own gain and I mean, even in 2019, there were areas that were mainly used to be Labour or working class areas, then turned to the Tory party. And it comes into this question of why were people so disenfranchised that, why, why were different disenfranchised working class communities feeling that middle class white men who went to Eton and Oxbridge were the more relatable choice? And it's just, yeah, it's really, really difficult, I think, and really frustrating to be in a country where you don't feel like there's anyone who's sticking up for you almost and I think that's why seeing obviously even 2020 we have this yeah the student rent strikes and we've got Black Lives Matter and we've got the NHS there are so many social issues that kind of rose up and it was all down to the bad decisions of the government that exposed the cracks but even still it makes me think a couple of years later, are we going to be looking back and being like, Boris Johnson was amazing, he saved our country, and another reason to vote for him? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's like very difficult for me to kind of talk, like say it all, because there's just so much that I think is wrong at the moment. And 
I think that one thing that Britain loves to do is, oh, have you seen America? Have you seen America? I mean, oh, they're doing awful over there. Trump, you know, the COVID deaths. We're not that different. And I think that people need to remember that. And I've seen there's a um, a really good political commentator called Hassan Piker. He's a YouTuber and very active on Twitter. And he was part of a, a news group called The Young Turks. I don't know if you've heard of them. They yeah, just yeah, kind of share them. In the yeah. So he used to be a part of them and he tweeted this tweet and I went, oh my God, is it true? And it was, is Britain the America of Europe? <laughs> and I was like, oh. Oh my goodness, that is awful. That is terrifying. If the shoe fits, if the shoe fits, but yeah. it must fit. And then, and then obviously doing all this like research on my own and reading about it. And I think that we might be. <laughs> that is awful. But no, that is a very good point. That I think the reason why that scared me so much is because there's so much truth to it, you know? <laughs> like Definitely. just hearing that, like that is such a stressful thing to think. But Yeah. Like, did he lie? <laughs> I know, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um so on the topic of like, you know, we sort of vaguely spoken about like workers' rights and that being an issue, like why do you think it is that the pandemic exposed so many inequalities the different groups face in society and as you say like I don't know whether you want to take like an American or British focus or sort of just like lob us Mm -hmm. all in together there's like there's no sort of you know there's no there's no right way to do this but like personally what like what are your thoughts on that I mean obviously I think a lot of people I'm sure if you ask a lot of people especially like on the left side of politics which is where I don't know if you've guessed where I stand um but um say that yeah that covid has you know exposed inequalities in different groups face and i think that's 100 percent true because obviously inequality hasn't disappeared we've not it's not just come out of nowhere we've not noticed it before but i think that when something bad happens i think you really see who comes out better and in this case it has been ethnic minorities and working class people and just kind of the people that are almost forgotten about in like Western progressive society. And I think that 2020 kind of pushed all these people to the forefront of everyone's mind. I mean, yeah, Rani Mitras basically did a, there's loads of research. They do a lot of research into race and issues and they did one for the general election and, you know, what ethnic minorities voted for. And they also did one with COVID because obviously ethnic minorities and COVID has been a massive point of contention. But the research that they, they did found out that Black men are 3.3 times higher, and for black women, 2.4 times higher, likely to die from coronavirus than their white counterparts. And also, there was a really shocking fact that I read the other day, and it was something like Filipino health workers who died of coronavirus in the NHS more than they done have done in their home country in the Philippines. And you read things like that, and then I pretty tell recently in an interview, she said, oh, well, it's I think it was something like, oh, it's down to... The differences in people's races means that you know the way that things interact with COVID means they're di- no, that, no. It's because ethnic minorities are key workers that are having to go out and work because it's you know carers. A majority of them are ethnic minorities. I mean, my mum is works in a supermarket. She has to go every single day and work my dad's a social worker he's also out working with people all the time so if you look at the actual demographics of the people that are having to still work nine times out of ten they're ethnic minorities and therefore they are more exposed to the virus and therefore unfortunately are more likely to die 
And that's even that's exacerbated even more by a government that can't provide PPE and the protection that these people need. I mean, Belly Majinga is a prime example. She was working at the train station, someone spat in her face and she died of coronavirus and nothing's been done about it. It's just it's just like disgusting because I feel like I worry that because people think that you know, oh, but it's just someone, you know, going, a carer. These are vital people in our society. At the end of the day, they're letting the bankers and everyone go to work and do what they need to do. But you can't disregard people like that. You know, that's why it's frustrating. I think it's just really, I think ethnic minorities and the working class, people that have to go to work every day, they are more, they are facing the virus more and therefore are more at risk and I think people need the easier people kind of accept that and realize that that's the issue here and that's what they need to work on people need to be protected and if you don't want people to go to work make sure they've got the money to be able to stay home from work you know it's just yeah I mean it sounds so simple when I'm saying it to you but clearly it's not because the government don't understand that do you know what I mean I sometimes think how great would it be if they got a random pool of a hundred people to make the decisions for this country, I feel like they do a better job than the people that we've actually voted to do this. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I feel like I went on a bit of a tangent there. No, no, not at all. That completely answers it. Um, so I wanted to ask your opinion then, based on you know what you've said. You, you sort of spoken a little bit about Priti Patel and obviously like the government. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think that she's a really interesting character. Like I've written about her in quite a lot of like the university essays that I've written just yeah. because I always find it really hard to hear Tories talk about her as if she's a positive person simply because like she's a woman and she's an ethnic minority. And I was yeah. just wondering like, what are your opinions on her? Because at my university, unfortunately it is the case that like it's mainly like white middle class people and we can sit there as much as we want and discuss like how we don't actually think she's doing much good but you know I think that we should probably ask someone who who Pretty Patel says she represents like what do you think about her? First thing I want to say is she does not represent me (laughs) at all as an Indian woman she does not oh don't get me started um so I actually did a politics module at uni as well because obviously that's why I was like I love it I want to do a bit more so I did a module all about race, ethnicity and migration and it was all about you know how ethnic minorities vote, how to kind of get ethnic minorities into the voting system and make them not feel so disenfranchised and a lot of that was about who represents them. So I mean we've got some really good examples like Priti Patel is a brilliant one because one she is <laughs> she's the um sorry I just lost my train of thought there. That's all right. She obviously works in the home office so she is a massive part of immigration she herself or her parents are immigrants so she is a second generation immigrant um so for someone to be so i don't even know if blase is the word but to be so kind of closed off to the idea of immigration for me it's really difficult to understand because that is something i feel very strongly about um and her stance on, for example, refugees is something that that really, really, really upsets me because obviously me myself being from a similar background to Pretty Town in the sense that my my mum and my grandparents are both first generation immigrants. It's it's upsetting because you hear the experience of your family and you know that they've come to this country, for example, to 
to, to be better and you know to make money and like make a life for themselves because it's very different in India especially in the 60s India was not the place it is now it wasn't kind of like the economic hub it is now and I think that she just doesn't represent I think that she's an example of symbolic inclusion so she's purely there to make the party seem progressive but they're only going to accept people of color women of color black politicians Indian politicians anyone who is not a white middle class person into the party only if that they abide to the same rules that they do which Priti Patel is a brilliant example of she is someone that is very conservative and you know Sajid Javid is the same because obviously he was transferred to the exchequer and he although he was a man a man of colour he kind of had very conservative views and there were things he'd vote for for example I think he voted against gay marriage and that aligns with his Islamic side obviously very strict religious things it's not like agreed with in certain denominations of Islam but then also it's a very conservative group a view that for example Jacob Rees-Mogg agrees with you know so I think that it's just because somebody looks like you does not necessarily mean they represent the views you do. And I'm sure you can say the same. I mean, there are probably many female politicians, white female politicians, that you'd be like, you don't align with it all. So I think that people need to remember that just because someone is a woman of colour, she does not speak for all women of colour. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think yeah. it's easy to forget because there's not a lot of them in politics at the moment. But it isn't. It isn't the case. But then if you give me someone like Diane Abbott, yeah, I'll say she she represents me well. But Pretty Patel does not, unfortunately. So yeah, I think it's a case of understanding that there isn't there is never just one mouthpiece for people of colour. There are so many different views and Pretty Patel is just I mean, I mean when me and my dad talk about her, we all describe her as an anomaly, to be honest. <laughs> Don't really understand where she's got it from. But also Another thing is, sorry, I just forgot, she's also part of the ethnic minority myth and model minority myth. So is also really present in this situation because in Western countries like America and the UK, um, Asians are perceived as the best minority. I say that in quotation marks because there's no such thing. But you have to remember that I think Indian people, especially in this country, they are economically better off than other ethnic minorities and therefore kind of fit into the bracket that white supremacists for example want them to fit into and people that necessarily don't want to break the status quo I don't know if this makes sense sorry yeah, but no, do you know no, what I mean yeah, yeah completely completely it does but it, you've got to be I think that there's a lot of anti-blackness within South Asian communities for example and that's why I think that people like Priti Patel are just, yeah, are an anomaly because they don't represent the views of all South Asian people because they are just, uh, they only kind of fit into this bracket that the white, for example, the straight white man wants yeah, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Do you yeah, know what I mean? No, it's I, very, yeah, like, it's very complex because yeah. there's so much to it. But the main thing that I'm trying to say, basically, from all of that is that Pretty Patel kind of comes across an idea of symbolic inclusion, symbolic inclusion, where she fits the exact idea of what the Conservative Party wants from a woman of colour, as long as they seem progressive, 
even if her views are very conservative yeah and not progressive yeah yeah completely yeah no I do (laughs) I do agree with you and I think like something that I always think about when it comes to this topic but like never really in much depth is um yeah so I do see a lot of white women in politics and you know that is you know potentially like a good thing but my favorite one that people always bring up is like oh the conservative party have the most like gay mps i could not tell you the name of a single like non-straight female white mp like i literally can't because like for me they like they don't it's not even like they don't represent me like we're on different planets do you know what i mean like just because someone was born in 1965 and uh is not straight and is a woman and has you know broken through some barriers that does not mean that they represent me I always think this like I literally couldn't name you one because I'm so like not in tune with it and it's always really interesting as well because I my MP where I live with my parents is actually he's a he's a gay man and it's so funny that um that that is the case because he just is goes against everything that I stand for like absolutely everything and obviously like he's he is a gay straight man who was also in the military I believe so you know like we're very different people like we're not the same but equally like I just can't understand anything that he says like it comes out of his mouth and it's not the same at all to race because you know race is so such a big part of your life whereas for someone like me I'm straight passing I couldn't hide it like I'm very femme um so like I don't really face any day-to-day discrimination I've never really received any abuse for you know who I'm with or anything like that like for me it just comes down to like I do not recognize any conservative MPs as being anything like me like you know them being LGBT usually in the world that's a big thing you know you you find someone and it's like oh you're we're part of the same community like we have shared experiences with them it's like we're on a different planet I remember going to a speech in fact with Crispin Blunt who is the MP where I live mm-hmm. and he was you know just talking about basically how Brexit means that um British imperialism can begin again like oh, that's wow. essentially what he was saying he was like we can return to like the glory days of empire and I was just sat there in the front oh. row and I was like you could have done so much like you know even even if he's conservative like he could have done so much to speak about like LGBT youth and like he could have given a talk about what his experiences are like and you know started maybe even like a network for people in his constituency for young people who need help because I he didn't come out until he was he'd been married for 20 years and he came out like after having a wife and children you know it's 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 a sad story in a way obviously I guess hopeful but he could have done so much but like he chose it he chose that like that opportunity coming from a somewhat I guess straight passing but oppressed background to oppress others and it was just awful I was like this is not how it should be like this is not like you know what it's like to face discrimination I think he's in his like late 50s early 60s so he grew up in like the prime of you know Maggie Thatcher no tolerance for homosexuality in schools like no teaching about it all of this and like he just didn't he was just so horrible but that's it isn't it that's it it's that yeah, you can't expect someone to represent you all the time just because they might, yeah, look like you or share some traits with you. And yeah, exactly like you said, like you, all the things that you said that he should have done or he could have done, it, it makes complete sense. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Which just makes it just it just shocks me. I think that what what are they thinking? <laughs> yeah exactly it's like you know you you're I I yeah I 
sort of past the point of caring like that he's a Tory you know what like that's fine that's one thing yeah. but like when it comes down to it you could use that platform to be to spread a positive message and maybe even just maybe someone in that room might have thought you know what like I actually might vote for him because he's, he really cares about sticking up for like LGBT youth like that's really yeah. important to him like he had the opportunity same with Pretty Patel like she has the opportunity the platform to speak about issues that exist within you know all different exactly. communities all different backgrounds like troubles that she faced I'm sure that she faced racial discrimination growing up and she could have the opportunity you're, to you're talk summing about it. up in a much clearer way than I did but that's exactly it that's exactly it they just don't like what <laughs> so that's many questions exactly <laughs> I know I know I know so many questions just first one being what are you doing what are you doing like I think it was the um the new immigration system that Priti Patel wants to bring in or has bring in um, wouldn't even let her parents in the country. It's just like, what? What? I just, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to understand, I think. I just can't, I can't comprehend it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really can't comprehend it. It yeah. confuses me, really confuses me. <laughs> I have um, something really interesting to ask you about, which is sort of like links onto this point. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to give like a brief summary to the listeners about what this is. And I'll try and make it really short, but I do tend to waffle. So basically, the government have introduced this thing called a free speech champion. And this person is going to be going, well, not going literally, but investigating cases in universities where speakers haven't been given a platform. I went to a talk last Thursday where the launch of the free speech champions happened. Um, as Simran has very kindly explained, there was a lot of sort of you know, symbolic representation that there were lots of people who were non-white, there were lots of people who were, like, had disabilities, like, speech impediments, and they were talking about that. Um, vaguely, from what I know, there were also LGBT people there, so they sort of, you know, they cast the net out wide in terms of, like, saying, we're not racist, homophobic, or ableist, we just want free speech. But basically, this, this whole thing comes about because this group, the Free Speech Champions, want anyone to be able to speak in a university and given a platform um like no matter what their views are um and this is comes about because previously people like amber rudd have been denied to speak in particular she was denied to speak at the oxford union on the 9th of march i believe last year mm -hmm. because of her involvement with the windrush scandal and she was deep she was no platform basically they said we don't want her here um, yeah, so I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that and how you think that's going to affect politics. Because again, this comes at a time where the government couldn't really be doing much worse and then they really took it a step further and said no yeah. to protecting minority rights. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've read a lot recently also about like the war on woke and I think this is, this is linked. So obviously we all believe in free speech. I believe in free speech. I'm like 99% sure you believe in free speech. I mean, if we weren't allowed to have free speech, we wouldn't be talking about what we're talking about right now. But I think there's a difference between free speech and giving someone a platform to incite hatred. And I think that a lot of the times that's what happens when these people are given a platform. Um, it's difficult because obviously, yeah, they are... I think they like to paint it as a picture of, no, it's not about... Yeah, it's not about inciting hatred. It's just about giving people... A chance to speak but I think you have to understand that there might be someone in that crowd that is feeling very disenfranchised by what's going on in our mainstream political system doesn't really understand a lot about it hasn't taken time to learn about it because they don't feel like they can and don't feel like they want to because they just don't feel included 
they attend a speech like by someone let's say for example for just for sods law just for sods law <laughs> just for just for argument's sake um katie hopkins and she does a speech and she says some stuff and they go oh do you know what like, this is it this is it for me and she said something i don't know really horrible i mean she said so many awful things it's hard to pinpoint just one so I think you have to really think about, I mean, if they do want to give people a platform, I think they have to be very careful with the type of content they're sharing. And I know that kind of limits the idea of free speech, but also a lot of these people, I do find that when they are speaking, it does, one, give people ideas, and two, incite hatred. And we need to be so careful of that. I mean, something I was going to talk about later, but I feel like it's very relevant now. I mean, the number of hate crimes it's rising every single year and we don't want to encourage that that's what i'm i'm worried about or concerned about is that giving people a platform when they have views that can really hurt people is very dangerous and you know yeah it is it is it is an important debate to have because i think it is going to be more common and i think it's going to be talked about a lot more because i mean how many times have you seen like political correctness debates and oh the snowflakes oh it's different now but a lot of this stuff is, it's fake news in the sense that I remember around Christmas time, we want to be, there to be snow people. No one's ever said that. Not a single person has said that. But what they're doing is by bringing in that debate, they're distracting from the ideas that are actually put on, which is, for example, that trans people are being hurt every single day. But they want you to think that what the trans people really care about is having snowmen being called snow. it's it's just not the case so I think that yeah that's a really 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 great question because it is really important to kind of understand that free speech is important but there is a difference between free speech and inciting violence or hatred and yeah I mean Twitter have Twitter have been obviously very very strict with that I mean just finally after a billion years with obviously Trump and all the stuff that happened with him and him getting banned from the platform I mean some would definitely argue that what Trump was saying was free speech, but I also know a lot of people that would say that that was inciting hatred. And yeah, you have to be really careful. And there is a thin line, but sometimes I think it's almost worse when people are given a platform. And it's just, yeah, it can be really dangerous, I think. It can be really dangerous. Yeah, um, yeah, I completely um, agree with everything you're saying. Like, the it's it's so true that it does there is a very thin line and it's interesting as well that um the government think that they're the ones who should get to decide that line as to when it becomes hatred but equally I yeah. think the sounds of it it doesn't sound like they're going to do that much to you know they care so much about counter-terrorism but equally when you have I hate to say it but people who are inciting terror by it you know giving having platforms with extremist views you know exciting yeah. hatred like they they won't do anything about that for me like exactly. I think it comes down to sort of like two things firstly i saw this guardian article and again i don't want to misquote them but it said something along the lines of like the freedom of speech is not the same as freedom to be heard like you can yeah. say whatever you want but you don't have the freedom to say it wherever you want it and yeah, that definitely. then ties on to the idea of like you know do these the people that i saw particularly in this like you know free speech conference they were all acting as though they had a right to speak at universities because this is what the rule is targeting. Like it's about universities and yeah. colleges, but no one has a right to speak at a university or a college or an institution. It's a historical institution. It is a privilege to be invited to speak there. 
And Definitely. if that body as a private institution says, we don't want you here, and again, that could also come from the far left. I'm not saying, you know, it's all gung-ho with all the communists. You know, if people, yeah, definitely, people yeah. are Marxists, they might not want them there either. But ultimately, yeah. it's, it, you know, they love they love to talk about how the we should be laissez-faire and, you know, allow free speech. But when it comes to a university's free speech to say, oh, actually, no, we don't want that person speaking here, on our property that we paid for yeah. with our money the government are like oh no better step in there real quick like <laughs> watch yeah, out the free speech police are on you so um yeah i i, know. I completely yeah. i completely agree with you and i'm i'm really shocked at it and again the lady who set up the free speech champions is a black woman i'm not sure exactly what her name was she mm-hmm. gave some points that i thought were interesting but something that really stuck with me in this like sort of conference was that she didn't talk about race at all she didn't like she spoke about free speech as a theory and as a concept and to me that sort of summed it up it was the same for another person actually the lady leading it she spoke about like how in regards to racial hatred and um like abuse online it's particularly in regards to like marcus rashford and diane abbott who received so much online abuse she said yeah. that people need to grow a thick skin and then she said oh but also there is a line but these people are like they want free speech but it's it's in theory they talk about it because in practice as they even showed it doesn't it doesn't actually always play out that way and you know discrimination might and may, probably will occur by giving anyone a platform to speak anywhere definitely. they like yeah i completely agree with you there i think that's definitely true i think it's a lot easier said than done but yeah i mean if you look at our own prime minister I mean, you uh, people want to say that Donald Trump's bad, and Boris Johnson definitely has a massive history of racist and classist behaviour, not too dissimilar from him. And I mean, at least America, almost, almost is more openly xenophobic, whereas Britain disguises itself as kind of this paradigm of of liberality, where you know everyone's accepted. But then also, you think back to a year ago, and it was when Stormzy was under fire for saying that Britain was 100% racist and it was completely misconstrued and right-wing keyboard warriors were arguing that Britain was not in fact racist and it's a paradise of minorities and if we don't want to be here, we should go. But if, like, you'd actually done some research and kind of listened to what Stormzy was saying, he was saying that racism is still apparent in Britain but not that every single person in Britain is a racist. And it's just, like, things like that so what is Stormzy's not allowed to say that? Is that not countless? Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it's very much all about double standards though. And I feel like that's the problem with politics, is that there are so many double standards and there are so many things and it's not surprising that young people feel so kind of disenfranchised with the political system and why they feel like it's you know failed them or let them down and why people kind of just can't be can't bothered almost do you know what I mean yeah so yeah yeah. um no that's a really good point and I want to touch on what you said about young people but just before like in terms of double standard I mean I don't want to make your like blood boil but this is just something else that came to mind from that (laughs) horrific thing that I attended the talk about the free speech champions last week yeah the (laughs) sort of like the biggest hypocrisy um in relation to like sort of I guess uh discussing you know the controversial things like is Britain racist is Britain mm-hmm. inherently sexist? You know, all those controversial yeah. topics. Someone said, um, 
a man who, again, I don't know his name, he goes to Bristol University and he is a member of the Bristol Free Speech Society, which sort of sums it up. Um, he said that he really hates that when he gets involved with the trans debate that people call him transphobic. And I really, I just sat there and I was like, did, honestly, did I hear this? Well, what correctly? are you saying in that debate? There must be a reason that people are calling you transphobic. Because if I if I got involved in a trans debate and I said, yes, trans people deserve the same rights as me, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure nobody would call me transphobic. Yeah, I was like, um, well, you're probably being transphobic, firstly. Secondly, there's what, like, what debate is there to have? Like, you can't debate someone's human rights. Like, ooh, like, you, that's oh, not really up for debate. And yeah. thirdly, again, that double standard, like, so you want the right to be able to be transphobic, or, I'm not, maybe you shouldn't say that, to get involved with debates about yeah. the rights of trans And have an opposing view, which but, doesn't, yeah, yeah, but then if someone says, oh, well, I think you're being transphobic, you get upset, and that's not right, like, they can't have the, they can't have yeah. the free speech to do that. You know, I'm not advocating name-calling, but at the same time, like, you know you call it how you see it like that that you know if yeah don't give it out if you can't take it yeah if you if you if That's you want it. to say those views and again if you're not in the majority then you can't really get upset about it I don't think and again yeah. it comes back to this whole thing of like basically a lot of a, a majority of people who have different views and sort of not, not mainstream views and I'm not going to say all because I do know a lot of people who don't have mainstream views on things but they're very dignified and they they wouldn't want to antagonise people, but it is a specific yeah. group of people who do like to dish it out, and then they get, I guess, I don't know what a better word is, but they do get somewhat butthurt when it yeah, like, comes no, yeah, definitely, them. yeah. Like, you know, I'm going to be a bigot, and I want the freedom to be a bigot, but you can't you can't call me that, because that's not very definitely. nice. Um, 100%. But yeah, um, in terms of what you were saying about um, youth enfranchisement, and I guess disenfranchisement, which is a huge mm -hmm. thing, when was it that you first started to get involved in politics and why is it that you think it's so important for young people to be involved in politics or not even in politics but just like to be mindful about what's going on to, and to have opinions yeah so really good question because I feel like a lot of people don't really understand why it, it, they should be involved in politics I mean I think we've probably all been guilty of this I mean I remember being probably like 15 16 and not really like engaging a tiny bit, but not having any particularly strong views. And I look now at people on like Twitter and stuff, and there's like 15 year olds like at the front of the protest. Like, I mean, Greta Thunberg is a prime example. She's 17 and she's so engaged, and it's amazing to see. But I think for me personally, I can't pinpoint like the exact moment where I was like, oh, I'm interested in politics. But I feel like I had some friends at school, especially in sixth form, that were really involved in politics. and. I had some friends who were Palestinian and that was the first time I was kind of exposed to politics that was outside of the mainstream, I'll say, because I feel like Palestine and Israel has only really come to the forefront of political debate recently. I mean, obviously there's probably been people who've been talking about it ages, but definitely like in the mainstream media, I've definitely seen more about it recently. Um, and I think my dad is probably a massive influence for me. I think my dad's kind of when I was younger, since since I've been little, he's been a social worker, so he's kind of always taken me to, like, picnics with people from, like, when when I was younger, like, hand up the sweets at a picnic that he's organised for people with disabilities, for example. And, yeah, ingrained this idea in me that 
I should never vote for myself and I should engage and I should learn because you have to use your privilege and your platform to do good and strive for equality. And I understand, I completely understand why people don't want to. It's so hard right now, even for me, someone who is so involved and so engaged and or tries their best to be at least, that, you know, it's hard. Like, ignorance is bliss. You, I'm not, if I wasn't involved in it, there'd probably be a lot of days I wake up happier because I'm not reading a horrible news story. But I think for me, it's just important because of the background I'm from. I mean, being from an immigrant family, you kind of hear about these experiences and like, it makes me think that I would never want anyone I know to go through that or even go through that myself. So I feel like I, I always have a role to do something and you know, I'm trying my best and it is difficult. And there are some days when I just want to close everything down and just kind of get into bed and not read anymore. But I think that, I don't know, there's just a passion inside me for, for like change. I don't know. And I think that it's important for young people to engage particularly because we are kind of always ignored. And I think that people forget that we are a massive part of society and we are really important. And I think that with COVID, we've seen, you know, university students get ignored. We've been blamed, I would say, almost for a lot of things that have happened with, you know, eat out to help out. It was definitely young people that were going out and doing that. And then now we're getting the adverts of look him in the eyes and tell him that you're doing all you can to stop COVID. It's, it's difficult and I've got loads of friends I think and only now kind of opening up because they're seeing how much this government has kind of screwed them over and only now engaging but I don't want people to have to go through something bad before they realise that politics is important it should be something that people feel like they one can learn about because it, it sometimes I well at least before I found that politics can be quite inaccessible it's quite like difficult to find maybe unbiased information if you want to learn something or a lot of people like my housemates sometimes find it difficult because there's so much they want to change but how do they change that and there's only so much you can do on a grassroots community level it's it's really difficult but I think that every little thing helps and I think that young people could be so powerful if we all kind of work together and were engaged and were interested but we're also the generation that find it the hardest to do so because we are let down so much yeah yeah absolutely um yeah I really hear you and definitely about like realizing that you have to be involved to make a difference like that's such a huge thing but yeah no I was literally thinking while you were speaking about it being a passion and stuff that's exactly what I was thinking I was like oh my goodness like that's like exactly how I feel it's just I I mean I I guess this is just like this comes from the perspective of someone like who is like heavily involved in politics I do a politics degree Mm -hmm. like my life is just like writing news articles blah 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 blah. I love it I absorb it but like for me I while I understand that people have lots of different passions, I find it hard to see how people have, like, hope and a drive to change the world or, like, a drive to really improve things without um, understanding politics. And I think that once you get sucked in, it's almost like this hole that you can't get out of. Like, I first started really paying attention 
when I was probably like 14 or so and like I saw the protests like the umbrella movement in Hong Kong and Hong Kong separation from China because my dad grew up there and I lived there for a while so I was like really like oh my goodness and then I sort of translated it to the UK and learning about English politics and I was like oh wow this is something I really really need to understand and I just couldn't stop but I think I maybe this is just a I guess this is like a really first sort of like white first world issue but something I always find hard is as you say like you can't you can't force people to care and I find it hard to have conversations especially with the demographic I find who don't care and also don't want to learn like they don't want to hear it they're not bothered is like young white men yeah I agree wouldn't say I don't know what sort of class issue is with this but I think that it's probably middle class men to a to a large degree because I think that while working class men would be disenfranchised they're also aware of that like they're aware that you know they directly experience it yeah Yeah, they they understand it but yeah I have have had so many conversations with like white men like my own age and older and younger as well and they're just like yeah I just don't really care about politics like it doesn't really affect me that much and I so badly just want to say like do you understand like how much privilege you have to yeah. say that? But then exactly. at the same time, I don't want to be another person that they hear. And this isn't like a, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be that to them. But I don't want to be another person that they hear saying like, oh, like, you know, recognize your privilege. Like you are a straight white man, blah, blah. And like, because I think that a lot of them, that's what's turned them away. And I'm not here to say like, let's open our yeah. hearts and open our arms to change the minds of white middle-class men. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but like, it's really, yeah. like, it's like a dilemma. Like, do I, I want to shout at you. I want to tell you that like, that's exactly why you should be involved because it doesn't affect you. Yeah. And to you, the like the ordinary man goes on as usual, no matter what happens in his life. However, I am also just so hyper aware that I can't shout because it will just make them turn off even more. So I've just been sort of, I guess, like over the past few years, as I've been learning, I've stopped arguing with people, especially about like, I guess, like feminism is a big thing. I've stopped arguing. Instead, I just bring things into conversation. I'll say like, oh, so for example, free speech, like, oh, like there's been this whole free speech thing. Like, what do you think? And like gradually, like, like, I guess I don't want to say indoctrinate because I don't want to make it sound like a cult. But when I do come into contact with people who I'm not usually around straight white men um I do <laughs> tend to say like hey like oh like have you heard about this or like what do you think to try and you know if you make it if you make it sort of if you want to ask their opinion eventually you'll get through and they'll start caring and I think that's that's an important thing even if it's just voting at least they have an awareness and I would say yeah. that like they're you know they're a demographic that could really change things because they have so much power and I guess you know they wouldn't want me to say it but privilege they do have a lot of privilege in which they people take them seriously and for, and it's, they don't and it's not taken for granted you know when they're in control and being assertive they're not angry or you know seen as like oh like what yeah. are you gonna do you're gonna hurt me because you're so angry they're not you know they're not seen as like some weird PC snowflake based on you know Definitely. what people assume their sexuality is like they really have a, a, a something very powerful and I would just would really like to find a way to like mobilize the white man <laughs> no you're like completely right I think that's why for me 2020 was such a weird year for politics purely because obviously I said 2020 was pivotal but it's not that 2020 was pivotal I think it was more that it was a mouthpiece for issues in the sense that the issues weren't new we we knew that these things were going on for example Black Lives Matter that's been around since 2013 kind of caught momentum in 2016 with the murders of Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling. 
2016 was the year that Colin Kaepernick kneeled during the NFL game. So that was kind of when it built momentum. But I think 2020 kind of just exposed the cracks more than ever. And I can definitely say that a lot of that is down to social media. And I've genuinely never seen so many people publicly involved in the discussion of race and inequality in society. I think that's what it is. I think I might be talking about these issues for a long time, but I've never just seen so many different types of people being involved in this discussion. And I think that, yeah, exactly as you say, white men, white middle-class men or white men, whoever, one of those two, they are very, yeah, important in the discussion, but I think that it's easy for a lot of people to kind of disengage because it doesn't affect them. Whatever happens, they'll be fine. And as frustrating as that is, I think there needs to be a way to mobilise people that, one, feel let down and feel really, really stuck and don't know if there's anything else that they can give or do that will change the way things are. But two, mobilise the people that are fine and feel like there doesn't need to be changed because everything in their life is okay and everything's fine and they're getting on and they will never be in trouble because I think that's what the point I said before of you know voting for for other people I think that's that's important and that's what a lot of people do like me and you I'm sure we both do that but it's about getting these people to do that because I think if we got a lot more people to think of other people but I mean it's crazy that I'm even saying that we have to get people to be selfless because you know like that's weird that selflessness has to be encouraged and I think that's part of the West's problem with like individualism rather than thinking of people as a collective I think that people are out for themselves and that's something that we really need to work on but I mean you can't really blame them when there are so many issues going on there are so many problems and it's hard to succeed in life at the moment you know but yeah, no, that's a really, really great point, I think, about, you know, white middle-class men being a really... They're kind of like the opposite of disenfranchised because they're very present. They understand what's going on their vote, but they just kind of do it with no thought because it's fine and everything's fine. But, yeah, I think it just needs to... needs to open that discussion, discussion, but obviously, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to find out exactly how to do that without breaking down barriers yeah absolutely and what you said in particular about um at the beginning just about like you know working class men in particular about how they feel let down by the system I think that's a huge thing I I care quite a lot about sort of like far right movements it's something I'm really fascinated by because mm-hmm. you know like we've really seen even even you know like UKIP I would classify them as having a particular demographic of voters who I would say are far right and then obviously you've got the BNP you've got EDL you've got all sorts of groups and I think white working class men um are really vulnerable in society to be be targeted by those groups and again like this this just brings it all back to like the idea of the government you know talking about terrorism and counter-terrorism measures and yet they think that the vulnerable groups in society are only muslim brown men like those those young boys those teenage boys are the vulnerable ones and you know girls as well they're the ones who are vulnerable but i really think that they're missing a huge demographic of people who feel let down and i'm not saying that i'm not i'm again i'm not here to be like oh we should feel sympathy for them or anything i'm not saying that i'm this is purely like a just an analytical point that they are vulnerable 
to far-right extremism and through free speech, through misinformation in the media, they are building up a wall of resistance to social change, which we need to happen. And I think that getting them on side, targeting that, I guess, doing like counter-terrorism by sort of like indoctrinating them into sort of like yeah. you know, liberalism and showing them that there is a better future that's possible is really key to um, having a more united country, I would say, even. Like, I think that it's it's sort of gone past the point where, you know, elder generations whatever their demographic a lot of them have their own views on things and I guess I I mean I don't know what other people think I am always challenging my grandparents unfortunately for them but I'm always challenging them but I also think that like there comes a point where like you can only say so much and they're so set in their ways but like we really need to as young people ensure that we collectively are standing together and I think that that's going to be really important to prevent um, far-right groups from carrying on for, like because people 100%. are disenfranchised, encouraging them to see why it's so important that we have like Black Lives Matter, why even things like Pride exist, because a lot of them question that. I always see that online. Yeah. People saying like, why do we still have Pride? And it's like, right, okay, um, <laughs> you know, to to yeah. let them see that all of these conversations include them and need them. And while I'm not saying that their voices are the most important, because they're not, their support mm-hmm. is very important. Yeah, you need people with a platform and with privilege to get anything done. It's the same with feminism. Without without men, without the support of men, it's highly unlikely, unfortunately, that things can be done. And I think that you're so right that there is a problem with, yeah, like the radicalisation of young men. And I mean, the internet, like YouTube, I listened to a podcast recently and it basically was talking about how how easy it is for young men to go on YouTube, watch these videos... And next thing you know, they're on, yeah, some far-right YouTubers page who's talking about something. And, yeah, it's unfortunately, it's really, really easy because they feel let down by the mainstream and what's going on in our world that they find it somewhere else. And I think that, yeah, you're right, we definitely need to talk about that because it is an important demographic that was also forgotten about and also definitely one that we should we should, we should be focusing on kind of get out of that because I think we're we're probably in some of the most polarized times that we've ever been in definitely I think the last two years have been really really polarized I mean with the last general election it was definitely choosing between two very very opposite candidates I mean Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson you couldn't get further apart but yeah so I think that it's important that it needs to be nipped in the bud really doesn't it I mean the radicalization is a massive issue and yeah I was I watched American History X recently and it's not far off what's happening in today's world and that's not that's a film that was made over 20 years ago or so so yeah I definitely agree with you I think that people need to kind of realize that there is more going on than just you know Islamic radicalization and extremism there is one on the other side and that's far right and that tends to be more problematic. I mean, we see so many problems in America, like how many shootings are committed by young white boys. It's, yeah, it's really important. I think I don't think it's talked about enough as well. And I think that with the rising power of social media, YouTube, all these algorithms that really kind of get to people, yeah, you've got to be really careful because this content is, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um. But yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. And I think it's definitely something that people need to need to remember. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, 
yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just, I think it's something that, because the media since, well, since 9-11 and before, have basically portrayed, you know, this is what an extremist looks like, this is what a terrorist looks like, that kind of, you know, extremism comes in all forms and when it you know when it starts to hurt people and it is you know about um disregarding lives and disregarding rights and liberty that's when I think it crosses the line into terror um and inciting hatred and I think that it's really important that um we well I mean I don't know if the government are really you know thinking about how terrorism isn't just like this you know this singularly faceted issue but I really, really think that it's important that we start having more discussions about, you know, that boy who's in your class who even, you know, even whether you're in the UK or the US, you might have a boy in your class who's sitting there and he's very quiet or a girl in your class. It could be, you know, either. And then suddenly you start to hear sort of some strange ideas and then it gets angrier and angrier and people just disregard it and tell them to be quiet. And I think that that's where it can get dangerous because as we've seen in the US, those sort of those types of people who are typically characterised as really unfortunately who end up to be school shooters suffering with mental health problems and mm-hmm. have been radicalized like it's really really dangerous and while we don't have the issue that they have in the u.s with with guns it's still not great to you know to, yeah, have to imagine that 100%. people are being you know i guess ostracized and well not ostracized like are ostracizing themselves by getting into yeah. this really dark world definitely because i even worry about my brother who obviously is a young Indian boy but I mean I think about some of the things that he watches on YouTube and I mean I've not seen anything particularly bad but I think there are lines even videos that you know might talk about women badly oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know things like that it's it, it's just the start because once you start watching things like that then you might get recommended something else and then you get recommended something else and I think it's one thing in the past when people were radicalized from reading books or you know watching tv shows but now it's at your fingertips the information is there and i think it's a responsibility yeah of the community to you know watch out for these people and keep people informed but also the responsibility of these big social media platforms to kind of make sure that the content that is on these websites isn't dangerous for children and for young people and for anyone really i mean yeah anyone can be radicalized it's it's not just who we think or the, the image that's been portrayed to us that these people can ratify. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, yeah, you're completely right. I think it's it's scary. And, I mean, that's what I said earlier about the rise in hate crime. Like, I was looking through the um, hate crime report for 2019-2020 and, like, the amount of racist hate crimes have increased so much, but also the amount of hate crimes against, yeah, LGBT communities and religious communities and everything and it's like we have to think about where the information is coming from there's a reason that people are committing these crimes and nine times out of ten it's because of misinformation so yeah we need to really kind of find where that's coming from and kind of work on that but yeah it's definitely something that isn't talked about enough I don't hear much dialogue about yeah far-right radicalization at all and it's like in america everyone are anti-fascist the antifa mm. like, oh my god they're like, absolute extremists but they like do you know what i mean but then what about the other side like the far right and the white supremacists and the nazis where's the discussion about 
their extremist views you know yeah yeah it goes back to our point of double standards doesn't it really yeah absolutely I completely agree with you um and yeah it is such a huge issue in America I think it's a lot more sort of blatant there as well as you say like the like rise of neo-nazis and skinheads and yeah yeah and, it's terrifying it's terrifying KKK. I talked to my dad about it and he, he he's just because he was around during the time of like the teddy boys and the national yeah, front yeah and things like that and he he would kind of talk to me about times when he was younger and you know he'd be called a packy and like you know get like racially abused but then I think back to the first time that I remember you know being racially abused and I must have been six or seven at a playground and it's and it's crazy because I think that when I was younger I thought oh my god like the world's gonna get so much more progressive I'm gonna be able to do whatever I want things are gonna get better but it I don't know if it's because I'm more aware or it just doesn't seem like it's going in the direction that we should be going in and I think I'm scared for the future purely because although you know I'm born here and I am very westernized I'm still very in touch with my culture like I speak Punjabi fluently I understand what goes on at home and I don't look like my white peers even though I can do everything that they do I don't have any problem doing that I'm very much assimilated into British society obviously I was born here I'm born on Christmas day for god's sake I'm literally like the dream <laughs> but like yeah, it's just, I'm scared because, I mean, there's so many stories that come out. And I think last year, I mean, I don't know if you've heard recently, there's the thing with that YouTube page, Bon Appetit. Oh, no, I haven't heard about that. So it's, a, it's, it's YouTube. It's a YouTube, like, um, what they call YouTube pages. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's channel, yeah. YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's channel. it. <laughs> <laughs> Such grammar energy. What are those things called? The <laughs> um, YouTube channel. And um, they shared content. It's like cooking content, so... You know, they'll teach you how to make stuff. Pretty similar to, like, Mob Kitchen and stuff like that. Um, and they recently, loads of stuff came out about them being racist to their employees. Um, and it was, for example, a, a, a Southeast Asian woman who said, why don't we do, I don't know, it was, like, dumplings or something, some kind of Asian dumpling. I don't know the specifics, sorry. But um, they were like, no, no, we're not going to do that. And then fired her and then a white woman took over and was doing these dumplings and then this Mexican man finally got given Mexican recipes and then they were like, well, you, why would you want to do that? Or something like, your mum must have fed you that all the time. Do you know what I mean? It's like little things like that that people might not necessarily think are racist are racist. And it's, yeah, it's, it's this topic of microaggressions and little things in society that I don't think people realise are actually really problematic and yeah, and I think that's why it's so terrifying because I'm lucky with the people that are around me and the kind of life I have. And I think in London it's a bubble, like it is. So like I've been born and raised in London and I live in London now. It's a very diverse place. I don't ever feel out of place or like, you know, anything like that. But the big the world is different and it just, just scares me sometimes that there will be a, there will come a day when I will face like major discrimination, and even seeing what what's happening to black communities in this country, and Muslim communities in this country, it's just yeah, it, it's scary. It's really scary to be honest. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's really terrifying to hear that as a child, 
um you had the realization like oh this is what's happening to me but oh I like have hope it's going to get better you know I I don't think I I honestly couldn't tell you when I first sort of realized that like racism existed and I think that really goes to like say it all that like there was no moment for me you know other things I can sort of pinpoint in terms of like seeing discrimination but race like I was just I guess one day it was just more like I became aware but I never I never had some sort of moment where I was like this is wrong and this is what like what's happening and yeah that's just that's just terrifying and I can't imagine the like the worry that you feel because as you said like the America aren't too dissimilar for us from us and it you can't you know, you can't hide away, you can't shy away and say, I'm just going to live indoors because I'm scared of this happening. Yeah, but equally, like, not. the fact that that's even a thought, like, that you might have, like, oh, oh, I won't go out this time, or, you know, you might change your behaviour in case in case you're worried about someone saying something or harassing you, like, that is just terrifying, and I can't believe we're living in times where that is the case. And unfortunately, that so many people in this country will deny it. They'll deny those experiences and deny that it's happening, and they're part of the problem so yeah oh yeah 100% it's like that um show I don't know if you watched it I think it was on channel four and it was um the school that ended racism oh no I didn't see that really good I recommend it but they um kind of did a social experiment with like a school group I think they want to say they were in year seven but I'm not 100% sure they were very young and they had obviously some some white children some Pakistani children southeast Asian Indian kids black kids a wide variety of children from all over the world and they kind of discussed racism with them. And there was so much stuff on the internet and on Twitter of, oh my God, these kids are way too young to be kind of being aware of racism. But it's like, no, because children are having, like children of colour, like, you know, kids are having to experience it. So what makes someone else too young to learn about it, you know? Like if black kids are being stopped going into the sweet shop and being told that they're stealing because they're being racially profiled at the age of seven. That's what happened to a boy in the show. He spoke about it. Why is someone who's also a seven-year-old white child shouldn't be allowed to learn about it? It's, I think it's important mm-hmm. for people to be aware. And I think it's even greater that they're being aware for so, from so young so they're not growing up with this kind of ignorance and then suddenly being expected. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's a really important discussion to have. And if people are experienced, if children are younger to experience, young enough to experience it then obviously other children are young enough to learn about it yeah completely I mean that is just that's outrageous that's really disgusting you know I like that the problem is the you know people saying oh they're too young to learn about it if it's young if, if it's such an issue that children that young are facing it then maybe the problem is that society isn't changing as opposed to they shouldn't be learning about it they should absolutely be learning about it like white children do not face hardships if they come you know from a middle class background and a stable background you know obviously everyone faces their struggles as a child everyone has issues within their families as a child but white children do not face racial discrimination and they should be learning about it I never learned about it until I probably until like I did my we like vaguely heard things about civil rights movement and then GCSEs again like oh like a little bit about the civil rights movement and then I remember in my A-levels I did A-level history and we did coursework and they just vaguely mentioned like oh yeah the slave triangle 
and you know like the Tate Modern is about Tate and Lyle and it's that's all linked to slavery oh well, that's it and then it's done it's just a bit of course even colonialism though it's the same with colonialism mm. me an Indian woman mm. did not know the extent to Britain's relationship with India until oh, I sh- it even shames me to say it until I was probably about 18 and that's because the school system doesn't teach it and I think mm. that's why all these kind of these um, groups have decolonised their curriculum. It's so good because it's important to learn about it. And that's why I say this a lot, but Britain loves and could be the inventor of historical amnesia. They forget how complicated their relationship is with race. So they can't really afford to not teach it because there is so much. I mean, yeah, the Windrush generation, and then we've got India. It's just two massive things. And then, like... It just needs to be spoken about and needs to be taught because people need to be informed because it underpins so many things in life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah for sure. Oh, I think our government, you know, will be the first. I remember hearing when I was like very young that in Germany they teach about the Holocaust from a really young age and that it's like a part of the school curriculum that German children understand Germany's role in that and yeah. as they should, you know what I mean? Like as they should. Yeah. And I remember hearing um like politicians at the time just like seeing it on the news and stuff and it being spoken about by teachers as well and we were all like oh that's such a good thing and politicians being like you know what like germany is doing the right thing here this is the best way to prevent something like that ever happening again and it's like did they even think like do they even like hear themselves and in school you know again like as a child i wasn't aware and i don't think that i had the tools to learn about race in the way that I would have wanted to but like Mm -hmm. I was sitting there as a child in a classroom saying that's really good to my teacher we were all like that's a great thing and the teacher did they even think like oh these children think that that's a good idea so we should be teaching them about the history of this country we should be teaching them about you know the pain that we've inflicted on so many countries and then just ignored it and then just paint it as like, oh, this really sunny time. And we did a couple of bad things, but overall yes, it was good, you know? Exactly. Like I think the good it's, old like days, Britain, as they say. Yeah, literally, they, Britain loves to be the hero of the story, <laughs> yeah. I think. That's what it is. Like, everything bad that's happened, they, the only bandage we can slack over is, but we won the war. Mm. Everything. Like, it's, oh, like Winston Churchill is a brilliant example. I think. Last year, you know, during all the protests and they boxed up the Winston Churchill statue. Yes, yeah. I was, and Boris Johnson released a statement of, you know, Winston Churchill is the, the best, of, you know, you know how he does. <laughs> that was a good impression. Um, thank you. You know how he does. Um, and I remember feeling really, really upset because Winston Churchill has openly said things, for example, about Indian people. There are beastly people with a beastly religion and this this statue is being protected as a relic and a reminder of you know Britain's great past but what about all the bad things he did he was openly a racist for god's sake and the people that are like defending this statue that were there at the protests as far as I'm concerned they're fascist Nazis who are protecting the statue of a guy who fought the fascist Nazis it just make it make sense Mm. do you know what I mean it's just yeah it's insane I think that Britain really has a problem with remembering the things they did and I think a really good book for that I read um Natives by Carla yeah recently yeah. or recently like a year ago but so good at explaining Britain's relationship with race and class because it's very complicated it's very very complicated but it's something that 
needs to be read. And I think that's a really good book for people trying to understand it in a British context. I feel like we do hear a lot about America when we're talking about race, but yeah, no, it's definitely something that Britain needs to work on for sure. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I could not agree with you more. It's, I think it's something that hopefully we'll see um, a complete 180 with in our lifetimes. I mean, I really, really, really hope that we do. Um, I honestly, I keep talking to you all day because this is so interesting. I'm having the best time ever. Um, oh, good. I am aware that we have been speaking, I think, for about an hour and a half now. <laughs> so um, oh I wanted to ask you, is there anything else that you want to speak about? Is there anything else, like, you want to get across? Like, yeah, just, like, sort of um, key things you care I about. Everyone who listens should go and read about the farmers' protests in India. Yes! we are getting, well, we, well, yeah, we, because it's where I'm from in India is actually where it's all kind of kicking off. I say kicking off, but where it's all kind of, everything's happening. But um, really important because I'm not seeing enough in the Western media about it. And my mum is sharing so much content with me because it's genuinely, so my family are from Punjab, which is in northern India. And that's where it's like a lot of the agriculture takes place and the current government in India, it's very Hindu, well, fundamentalist government. Um, there's been so many problems recently with um, the persecution of Sikhs. So my mum's a Sikh, so persecution of Sikhs and things like that. And it's it's really, really important to read about it because it's a massive issue. And it's, it's one of the biggest protests in the world, but I'm not seeing much at all. I mean, I'm seeing some news stories on BBC News now and again. But yeah, I think that's definitely something people need to read up about because it's it's important. And also... It's a big stand against capitalism and we love it. Yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, I interviewed um, a really, really amazing woman called Jindy a couple of weeks ago and she came on to speak about the farmers' protests and it was just like such an eye-opening experience because, you know, she was saying the exact same thing. Like, not only is it that there's not um, much news, but like the news that there is, is like so much misinformation and like yeah. it's just not credible at all. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That is something that I would advise everyone to go and yeah, read about. Yeah, I would say, go read about. It's important. I think, yeah, it's, it's if we're going to be aware of what's going on in the West, we also need to be aware of what's going on in the rest of the world because, you know, we're not free until we're all free. Yeah, absolutely, stuff. absolutely. Um, well, you've been absolutely amazing. I was just wondering, do you have, like, this could either be, like, a personal Instagram or just, like, a public Instagram that you use that you'd like to give people if you're socially active? If not, like, any websites, anything that you want to drop so that people can go and check out your work? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm probably too active on Instagram. <laughs> Everyone can go and have a look. Um, yeah, my Instagram is Simran SKJ, which is S-I-M-R-A-N-S-K-J. But yeah, go and look at my account. I mean, it's nothing exciting, but I do post things that I write on there, which is kind of nice sometimes. No, absolutely. That's really great. And lastly, could I ask you for a book recommendation if you have one? You've already given so many things, but, you know, I just, I'm absorbing all your content. So if you have anything else. <laughs> this was really hard for me to think about. Can I give two? Yeah, you can give two. Absolutely give two. Okay. So the first book I'm going to give, which is one of my favourite it's such an amazing read and it kind of really set me off reading about and like reading about anti-racism and yeah. it was the autobiography of Malcolm X really oh, really good wow yeah amazing amazing book and it kind of talks about his star and I think that in western media Malcolm X is sometimes portrayed as very differently to what he was actually like it's a really really good read would definitely recommend it and also I read recently The Underground Railroad by Colston Whitehead which is an amazing book about um, the slave trade in 
um, South in America, and it's a, yeah, it's an amazing read, and the language is beautiful, and it's just a, it's a really, really good story about something that I think we're not taught enough about. Yeah, I completely agree. Those are brilliant book recommendations. I literally say this every single time I interview someone, but again, my reading list grows even longer. So thank you, thank you, because those are great. And thank you so much for being on this evening. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you. And I'd really like to have you on again soon to discuss, well, literally anything you want, because you're so interesting. But like, particularly, oh it'd be good to have like political updates or something. Like, here's Simran with like your daily dose of government I'd bashing. Love to. <laughs> I love to. Thank you so much for having me. This is like my first ever podcast no way oh my god yeah I was like I really want to be on a podcast and Lucy was like who wants to be my podcast I was like I want to be on a podcast (laughs) and now here we are talking so long no honestly thank you so much for having me it's been so so nice it's been brilliant having you Thank you so, so much to Simran for being on the podcast. It was absolutely brilliant to speak to her. She's so interesting, so eloquent and just, yeah, really passionate about what she does. Unfortunately, Simran's podcast episode actually concludes all of the interviews I've got lined up at the moment. So that's it from me for now, but I'm sure I'll be back with something again soon. I want to take some time to just say thank you so much for listening, um, for giving me feedback and also starting really interesting discussions about the topics that have been um, discussed in the podcast. So yeah, thank you so much. Hello and welcome back to Afternoon Tea. I'm so, so glad that you can be here for this episode. It's really, really lovely to be back. 